Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer your emails. So let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. So as the podcast is getting more and more popular, I am having a hard time responding to everyone's emails. There was a time when that was absolutely within my possibility and schedule to do so. It's starting to be such that I can't, and I'm, I feel really bad about that because I really like interacting with the listeners directly. But I thought as a way to save time, I would just read all the questions uh, on the podcast and, and just respond that way. So if you want to ask a question, go to our website and use the Contact Us page. It's really the only way. Uh, I might actually start only allowing those kinds of um, emails to me because the Contact Us page on the website asks all the appropriate questions that I need you to answer in order for me to know if I can read it on the podcast or you know how, how you want to be referred to and all, all that kind of stuff. So you know, don't email me directly. Don't um, unless I know you, uh, but and don't comment on things because I, I can't. I don't have time to read those kinds of things. I do absolutely have time to read your emails through the contact us page on the website. This first email is from patron Emily from the UK. She said, "Refer to me as Emily from the UK." She says, "I wondered what you thought about Steven Pinker." So, in case you don't know, Steven Pinker is a famous scientist and. Uh, let's see what is what is his exact job let me let me look it up so on wikipedia it says that he's a canadian american cognitive psychologist linguist and popular science author and he is a professor at harvard known for evolutionary psychology and computational theory of the mind so emily from the uk says i wonder what you thought about steven pinker is he in the safe zone or is he just another conservative conservative university professor like uh, Jordan Peterson. He seems cool to me, and he has great hair, but I wondered how he is viewed among psychology professionals and the wider academic community at large. Uh, Good question. I am not sure how he's viewed by my colleagues. I imagine that there are a lot of different opinions about him, uh, but I I've never heard anyone talk about him in my circle, so I don't really, I don't really know what people think about him. But I, I certainly have opinions about him. I, I've been following his work for a long time. I, I probably since the internet first came online, Steven Pinker was one of the first people to really start making some popular videos on science and evolutionary psychology. So yeah, he does hold some quote unquote conservative views. I wouldn't say he's as far down the spectrum as, say, someone like Jordan Peterson. But uh, he has said some things that have bothered me. And uh, most of what he says I enjoy. But just there's a few things that he said. Like one, he gave a talk from the, you know, this is off the top of my memory, in which he was talking about evolutionary psychology. And he was sort of railing about how a lot of people, such as me, claim that personality is formed by our environment and our culture. And uh, people like me tend to de-emphasize the importance of genetics on personality and on instinct. And although I wouldn't characterize myself as that, I'm more of a half and half kind of person, nature and nurture. 
And also there's the, the dichotomy between nature and nurture is silly because n- nature is nurture. So uh, yeah, there's epigenetics. Uh, in order to really fully understand uh, genetics as they stand alone, you would have to raise a infant human in a box without ever having them interact with anybody. And of course, that doesn't make any sense because no, no, no human doesn't interact with the world, and is, especially the vast majority of uh, infant humans interact with with people and the world. And you know, so our genetics, so to speak take into account the fact that we're going to interact and are quote-unquote set up or programmed to be programmed by our surroundings. Anyway, um, but he was talking in the talk about how our personalities are largely genetic and he was bringing up uh, the common points that people make to make that argument, such as that uh, one of the arguments he gave is, is that they will study twins that were separated at birth, and they will find that the twins have some eerie uh, commonalities among them, like they both smoke the same cigarette, or they have the same haircut, or they both love the same movie or something. And this is supposed to be evidence that we're born to like a certain movie, and we're born to like a certain cigarette. I mean, he wouldn't put it that way, but we're born to have a certain personality that results in liking certain kinds of cigarettes and certain kind of movies and that kind of thing. But this is a an extremely unscientific um, claim because you take any two people, especially two people who are raised generally in the same culture, you're going to find common commonalities. For example, me and Umberto are not related at all. And yet we have a lot of commonalities. If you just, uh, you know... It, like off the top of my head, Beatle, the Beatles are our favorite band. We're probably both Paul McCartney uh, fans <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, our favorite Beatle. We both are musicians. We both like to record. We both like to talk a lot. We both like Depeche Mode. We both like other kinds of things. And so it's, uh, of course, no one would look at the two of us and, and, and claim that we're twins or that we were born, um, you know, with the same personality, yet we have a lot of commonalities. So now this isn't to say that twins don't share personality traits. They do. But in his argument to kind of eliminate the learning culture argument, he brought up a lot of what I would call to be dubious claims. But having said all that, in my opinion, the vast majority of what Steven Pinker says is not only, um, you know, supported by the evidence, but I support wholeheartedly. He he says a lot of the things that I say, and I might even have gotten some of the things that I say from him in part. For example, he has this amazing TED Talk in which he talks about how the world is in fact getting better. You, you might hear me on the podcast sometimes talk about how we have this narrative that the world is going down the tubes, that our society is going down the tubes, that, uh, you know, everything is getting worse. Now, barring global climate change, which absolutely is getting worse, and you could claim that um, overrides everything else that we could point to that says that our society is getting better. But there are so many things that people don't realize. Like one of the things that always uh, makes me giggle is 
when I hear news reports or people just talking in the past, like in the 80s or the 60s, and they'll be talking about how, uh, well, in today's difficult times, and it makes me think, has there ever been a time when anyone narrativized their time as a not difficult time? When in history, in our century or you know the past 100 years, has anyone ever said in the media, during these extremely non-chaotic, non-distressing uh, you know, times, we can really reflect on the fact that things are really good right now. It, that doesn't drive people to watch the news. It, it, it tends to be um, seen as some sort of de- de- denial of the bad things in the world. But we never do the opposite. Whenever anyone says the world is going down the tubes, no one stands up and says, hey, you're denying the good things that are happening in the world. For some reason, we just don't do that. And in this TED Talk, uh, Steven Pinker actually goes through the empirical data regarding many, many things that indicate that our world, not only our society and our, you know, the United States, but around the world, things are getting better. We are uh, in a... Um, it, statistically, we're in a very strange period in which we have very little deaths by war. Now, everyone can say, well, there's lots of war happening. There's a war in Afghanistan. There's a war, you know, there's tensions between Ukraine and Russia. There's tensions now with Iran. Yeah, tensions. There's always been tensions. You just you have to look in a history book and know that there's always been tensions. And there's always been deaths by war. But we are in an unprecedented time in which the chance of any individual being killed in a war is extremely low. You, you rewind the clock back, you know, 300 years, you know, even 100 years, the chances were much, much higher. Uh, Health-wise, obviously, I think most people can recognize that we're living longer, we're healthier, um, we're, we're, more po- we're more prosperous, people are more literate. People have, um, you know, shelter much more uh, than they did in the past. People are safer. Crime is lower. People have more leisure time. We are more knowledgeable. Societies are more free. Uh, There's so many different things. Now, we can point to societies and areas of the world or even in your own town in which this is not the case, of course. But on average, when when you look at, all the different societies, things are getting better. And Steven Pinker brilliantly lays this out in this TED Talk that he talks about. Now, I'm not an expert on all those different markers, but he makes a convincing argument to me. So I think that, like I said, the vast majority of what Steven Pinker talks about, um, I enjoy. But occasionally, I think he dips into areas that are, um, I think, ideologically misguided. All right, let's go on to another email. But before I do that, uh, you know, anyone who listened to my 900 plus episodes, someone who um, knew about a lot of things, they would be able to find philosophical problems with things that I say. So it's not like I am saying that Steven Pinker uh, makes ideologically uh, misguided statements. And I don't. I'm saying that when you are a media person, you're going to make – you're not going to see everything straight. I. This is an example. 
when I first started the podcast, one of our very first episodes was about polyamory and about uh, kink uh, lifestyle, so to speak, or BDSM, this kind of thing. And I had our a very um, prominent figure in the polyamorous world and in the kink world in Seattle, Alina Gabosh. And she was on the podcast talking about polyamory. I don't know how I got in contact with her. I think she, well, I don't know. But she was on the podcast. It was actually a video episode. And my first foray, so this would have been 2008, my first exposure to polyamory, uh, I, I didn't know much about it. And I had a pretty, um, shall I say, um, rudimentary understanding and viewpoint about polyamory. And in my questions to Alina, it's my ignorance is illuminated. I ask questions like, well, you know, isn't this just for a bunch of people who are abused? I didn't say that exactly, but it, it, it was something along those lines. And when I look back at that, I think I just didn't know enough about polyamory. Now, since that time, particularly during that time, because I had her on the episode and I talked with her a lot more after that, read some books, and then I started actually taking polyamorous clients, I now have a much more advanced understanding of polyamory. So right now, there are things that I will say, and perhaps Steven Pinker will say, that in 10 years, the two of us will have a more sophisticated understanding and will look back at things we said 10 years prior and cringe. And I suspect Steven Pinker uh, does that too. And what that means is that we don't shy away from saying things. It means that we do our best to uh, say things that are um, justifiable, that are intelligent, that are uh, that take everything uh, as pos- as much things into you know context as possible. Um, it also means that we give caveats and say things like "This is not my area" before saying things. And it also means looking back and maybe saying, you know, I was, I was wrong about that in the past. Uh, that's, the, that's the scientific way. The alternative is that we don't say anything. And I don't think that's a good world to live in. Uh, also, the other lesson to learn here is that whether you're listening to me or Steven Pinker or anyone else, you need to make your own choices for yourself about what is right and what is wrong, what makes sense to you and and what, you know, in relation to things that I might say on the podcast. Um, I'm often trying to convince the audience of certain things, but I am just a regular human with the same meat between my ears as everyone else and with the same flaws and the same cognitive biases and the same, uh, you know, tendency to blab about things that one is ignorant about. Um, so I, I don't fault Steven Pinker for occasionally saying things that I don't think are sound, um, especially because I be- believe the circle he runs with has a certain philosophy, particularly about evolutionary psychology, that uh, I'm guessing he's influenced by. And also, I imagine he gets attacked a lot for his views on evolutionary psychology. And so I imagine he's a little defensive about it. And anyone who listens to the podcast probably hears that in some of the arguments that I make too. So yeah, anyway, let's go on to the next email. All right, this next email is from patron Lena from California. She she sent me a, a research article about teacher's pets. 
and she wanted me to talk about teacher's pets. And before getting into the study, uh, I thought about whether or not I remember teacher's pets when I was in school. And I don't. I don't remember any teacher's pets. I suppose there might have been times when I was a little bit of a teacher's pet, but that would have been pretty rare. Usually I was mostly checked out. (laughs) I tended to be a quiet person. I liked sitting in the back row. That was my favorite place to sit. And I hated sitting in the front. And I don't really remember teacher's pets. Although if, if you transported me back to, you know, sixth grade, I'm sure that uh, I might be able to identify some, but I don't really remember them sticking out as much. What I do, what I did think of when I thought about teacher's pets was a colleague of mine had a problem a few years ago in which he had, you know, a fellow teacher at Antioch, and he had uh, a teacher's pet in his class, you know, graduate school. And at first he thought, well, it's, it's fine. She likes to ask a lot of questions. She, you know, flatters me a lot. It's fine. She seems maybe like she's anxious or something. I, I'm not going to bother with it. But over the quarter the other students or a group of the other students slowly and and profoundly hated the teacher's pet. The other classmates went so far as to even formally complain about the student. They wouldn't have said that their class, you know, the teacher's pet was a teacher's pet. They would have just said that um, she's being annoying or something like that. So, I thought that was actually kind of interesting because I had never experienced that as a professor. I had never experienced um, a teacher's pet to the level uh, to that level, and also I'd never experienced uh, a you know a you know cadre cadre a group of other students hating that student. Uh, now, what I also th- what I also thought of was I've definitely had what might be considered teacher's pets. As a professor, you know, when I teach, I've been teaching over 20 years and I've taught hundreds of students. And over that time, I can think back to some quote unquote teacher's pets. But it's not in graduate school. It's it doesn't really it's not very conducive to teacher's pets, if that makes any sense, because I don't really require much out of the students in that way. When you're in sixth grade and you're a teacher of, of a sixth grade class, you have to spend a good amount of time wrangling the students, telling them to sit down, telling, telling them to do their work, telling them to be quiet. And a teacher's pet or a good student or someone who's compliant and nice to the teacher will really stick out in a situation like that. In graduate school, we're all adults. For a good portion of the time that I was a professor, I was younger than most of my students. And so it's the maturity level is so much higher that all the students are compliant. All the students are trying hard. All the students turn in good work. So there's not, especially in graduate school, right? So there's not really a differentiation between the regular students or the bad students and the, and the good students, because all the students are generally pretty good. Um, but I, when I think back on some key students that I've worked with. I, I suppose some people might have called them teacher's pets, 
But really what they were to me was they were star students. They really showed that they were dedicated to the field. You know, as, as a professor, uh, the thing that I've learned is that as a student, when I was a student in graduate school, I got to know my classmates kind of, but I really wanted to get to know my professors. And when, and you also, by the nature of the classes, you get to know your professors really well because they're the ones talking, they're the ones reading your papers, blah, blah, blah. And your classmates are just sort of ancillary to that sometimes. As a professor, what I realized is that I get to know all the students really well. They all have a relationship with me, especially, you know, at Antioch where our classes are small. They're anywhere from six people to, you know, 16. So it's it's a small group. And by the end of the term, I, I get, you know, I have a relationship with each person. And the thing you realize is, as a professor is that um, – I don't know, you just get to know the different kinds of archetypes of students. And there's a certain archetype of students, of student where they are a leader in class, they do good work, they're always on time, they're responsible, they um, take learning very seriously, they have a you know wonderful attitude about things, they don't complain because they're there to be challenged and they're, they're there to learn, they're paying a lot of money and they want to do good work. And a lot of these leaders I will reward with um, compliments and also with uh, favors after graduation. One of the things that I always am a little surprised by is that uh, professors, and including myself, can make or break someone's career. At my university we have hundreds of students at a time and they're all thinking or they should be thinking about what they're going to be doing after graduation. And only a very few students will actually come to me for some guidance about post-grad or even some practical help. And for those people who come to me, I have a lot of resources. I'm at a point in my career where I have a lot of resources. Namely, I have a lot of people coming to me for therapy and I, my practice has been full for a long time. So I will, you know, funnel clients to particular uh, post-grads. And uh, I, when I graduated with my master's um, before I got my doctorate, when I got my master's, that's when I started my career as a clinician uh, 20 something years ago. And I had a mentor I I uh, I sort of fell into that relationship, but I definitely once I was in it, I definitely was like, "Ooh, this is good," you know. This mentor of mine knows the ropes. They also can give me clients. They also can help me out with my office and my private practice stuff and business stuff. They can help me with so many different things. And I just find it interesting how uh, some students recognize that naturally, and some students don't. So um, I'm always a bit boggled by the students who don't. They just sort of graduate and hope that things will just happen for them. And sometimes they do. They it just and they probably will. But it's it's harder with if you don't have someone. I think it comes down to different approaches of 
um, I don't know, learning and career and maybe even maturity level. There are some people who approach graduate school like it's an annoyance and it's something that they have to do. And they sort of groan at everything that they have to do as a, as a student. Certainly being in graduate school is stressful. I've had my fair share of stress in my master's and doctorate programs. But it, there's a general attitude that I see in some students where they, they just, everything is like, oh, God, you know, I got to do this reading and oh, I got to do this paper and oh, there's this thing and, God, you know, and in their head, what seems to be happening is they're just waiting until they graduate. And the thing that I know from experience is that once you graduate, you know, yeah, it's life gets better because you don't have to turn in papers and show up to class. But your approach to your career doesn't change. The uh, The necessary level of learning you have to do post-graduation is so high, and the stress of being a clinician is so high that if you're already annoyed with it in graduate school, I just, I just really worry about people post-grad because um, – I worry that they're not going to be – they're going to find that this job really isn't for them. And for many people, it's not. I, I know people who, upon graduation, never become a therapist because they um, – there's a lot of reasons why that happens. But I, one of the reasons is because they just found that it's just not really for them. And I think part of that is dispositional where it just is what it is. But I think a lot – some of it, at least, if not a lot, is due to one's attitude. If you approach life, especially a major career change like this to become a clinician, uh, if you approach it with, well, I just got to get through this, I just got to get through that, uh, that has a different result than than saying, okay, you know, I'm in graduate school, let's learn, let's do this thing. I'm going to pick the brain of my professors, I'm going to I'm going to make friends with people. I'm going to network. I'm going to enjoy the process because this might be the last time I ever go to school. Yeah, it's just a different vibe I get. Anyway, so some of those people might be looked at as teacher's pets. Uh, I'm not quite sure how other students would see them. Anyway, so getting to this study that patron Lena from California sent is by Truce 2017. And they break it out by... Uh, three different kinds of people, but the two that I thought was interesting was there were pet leaders and pet rejected. So there are teachers' pets who are also leaders of the class. They're like the popular kids. And in those instances, they found that their fellow classmates viewed this sort of teacher's pet in a positive light, meaning that the classmates would say, wow, that, that student is getting a lot of special attention. That student is... Um, you know, that the teacher clearly likes that student. But they think, well, that's because that's, that student is so great. <laughs> that's, why, that's why that student is getting special attention. So in those instances, there's not a dissonant reaction from the classmates. However, there's another kind of teacher's pet in which the classmates perceive the pet as getting special treatment because the teacher's pet is being very compliant or showing a lot of flattery. It, when, it, when a classmate sees a teacher's pet getting special uh, treatment just because the, 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 their classmate is like an Eddie Haskell, if you 
are old enough to remember Leave it to Beaver, meaning that the person does a lot of fake flattery and a lot of fake compliance, then the classmates tend to hate that student. Um, When they looked at preferences from teachers and students, they also found that teachers tended to like pets, uh, whereas students tended to not like pets, if that makes any sense. Anyway, um, now this got me thinking in terms of why would some students become teachers' pets and some students not? Well, this is speculation just off the top of my head. I think there are many roads to becoming a teacher's pet. Uh, I can imagine if someone was perfectionistic. I did a whole deep dive on perfectionism. I recommend listening to that if you want more information. Essentially, you're very focused on being good at things and doing things, quote-unquote, perfectly, uh, whether uh, it's for self-esteem reasons or because you feel pressure from the outside. Uh, there's a lot of different roads to perfection as well. But if you are perfectionistic and you're really trying to get good grades, then I can imagine that could motivate someone to become a teacher's pet to sort of assure the good graces of that teacher. Also, narcissism, I could imagine playing a role. A student could feel as though they're better than the than their classmates and therefore are more on the level of the teacher and try to cozy up to the teacher because of that. Also, if you have a student who's very anxious to get approval of everyone, including the teacher, that could result in teacher's pet behaviors. Also, being attached in a preoccupied way in that you are other-focused and you learned early in life that you needed to pay very close attention to your parents in order to make sure you um, reduced the likelihood of being abused and or increase the likelihood of being loved. And so some people are trained that way by their parents to be very other focused, to be very focused on adults. And so that I could imagine that being the precursor to becoming a teacher's pet. Also, if in your family, your role was to be the helpful one, there are family roles. And when you are in a family with a number of siblings, then each sibling will take on a different role. And if your family role is to be the very helpful one to the authority, then you'll just fall into that role because we tend to bring our roles with us, not always, but often. I could also see a teacher's pet emerging from a kid who feels very pressured to go to a good college and feels as though the only way they're going to get there is if they kiss the ass of the teacher. And there's probably a lot of other roads to becoming a teacher's pet. But anyway, thanks, Patreon Lena from California, for answering for asking this question. It's an interesting topic. I didn't actually know that there were any empirical psychological literature on such a thing as a teacher's pet, but there is. It's a whole academic area of study. <laughs> All right, let's take a break, and when we get back, let's answer some more emails. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. Just some announcements here. As always, become a patron of the podcast. That's how we know you like the show. Go to patreon.com. I also want to announce that we have given out over $10,000 in philanthropy for scholarships uh, scholarships to actual students, to LGBTQ causes like for teens and for adults. We've given to animal charities. We've given to charities that end homelessness for people. 
$10,000. And that money is not my money. That's your money. When you become a patron, part of your money goes towards that philanthropic effort. So all of you patrons out there, that's your doing. And you can go to our website and find the specifics on all that by going to, I think our there's a page called Our Philanthropy, I think. Also, join us on Facebook and Instagram in the Facebook fan group. Also, join us on YouTube Live on at 2 o'clock. We are um, starting to do every Thursday at 2 o'clock on YouTube Live to answer your questions. It's been really fun to interact live with the listeners in that way. We used to do Discord. We might do it again and uh, just look on the Facebook page for information about that. I, I always, and on Instagram, I always will announce uh, earlier that day what we're going to do. But I think I might stick with YouTube Live because it's a lot easier for me to do. All right. So let's talk about another email here. This is from an anonymous patron. Something I'd be interested in hearing you discuss in the podcast is the topic of touch within therapy. What kind of trainings exist for practitioners? Is training even necessary? What are the ethical concerns of using touch in therapy? How does transference complicate things? How does trauma history complicate things? Is it normal to want your therapist to touch you? Um, I, at that point, he just, and he just emailed me that. And at that point, I asked for clarification because that last bit was a bit illuminating. Is it normal to want your therapist to touch you? So I thought there was a bigger story there, and there was. So he uh, clarified, I ask because touch is something I've wanted from my therapist throughout our 10 months of work. She recommended I read about somatic experiencing. Some of the descriptions of therapeutic touch sounded so appealing to me, and it sounded like it would be the cure for my lifelong complicated PTSD. My psychodynamic psychotherapist quickly and clearly informed me that she's not trained in touch and that it's not part of her work with any clients. She referred me to a somatic practitioner. Long story short, I still haven't found a somatic practitioner who works for me. I still want so badly for my therapist to cross that boundary and provide touch. I've struggled with questions of whether I'm disgusting and predatory for wanting this from her and not being able to let it go. And whether I'm manipulative and pathetic for continuing to tearfully discuss in session how I wish she would, she would touch me. After months of this, she offered to make a compromise, and we did a pinky promise, quote-unquote, by interlocking our pinkies. There were no promises made. It was just the action of interlocking our pinkies. It felt really sweet and like what I needed to finally internalize that she doesn't find me repulsive or unworthy of flexible boundaries. The touch really helped me to realize she doesn't think I'm disgusting and that she doesn't think I'm dangerous. I hope I don't sound too fucked up. Laugh out loud. End of email. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I get emails about this and um, ancillary things to this occasionally. Basically, what we're looking at here is you're talking about you have complicated PTSD, which is often a result of relational trauma, some sort of terror that you went through growing up in, in your close relationships, often with your parents. So when you are relationally traumatized as a young person, 
there's always some element of touch involved in that. We usually don't talk about it because in psychotherapy, we tend to, and in our society, we tend to deny our need for touch. So it's often something that we don't talk about, and I'm glad that you brought it up. It's um, obvious that for kids that are very young and even middle, you know, preschool kids and, and primary school kids, that touch is a massive part of their lives and, and more specifically their attachment and their well-being lives. Infants who are newborns are, will actually die sometimes if you don't give them an, uh, enough human touch. And it, it, all you have to do is hang out with kids or think about your own kids to know that touch is just a big part of young people's lives. And that's not a mistake. It's not just some sort of accident that that happens. It's very purposeful. Uh, you know, all animals that are similar to us, when we are looking for reassurance, touch is a big part. I mean, think about a chimpanzee child is scared, runs to their mother and, and climbs on top of their mother, hugs their mother. Well, human infants are the same. When a human infant and, and child toddler is afraid, they don't just merely want some sort of visual or verbal reassurance. They want physical reassurance. They run to their parents. They um, grab onto their parents. They want to sit in the parents' lap. Even when the kid is just uh, relaxing, they want to be on top of the, the parents. They want to be held by the parents. They want to sleep with the parents. And all of this is, is touch. So when we are relationally traumatized, often it involves some sort of neglect around touch or some sort of complicated relationship with touch. Anonymous uh, patron, when you, you describe a situation in which you desperately wanted your therapist to touch you, that's a very particular kind of transference. Other kinds of transference, you know, we've talked about in the podcast before, but, but that's, you know, one particular kind. It's a normal kind. It's, it's common, but it, it's one particular kind. There's a lot of different things we can transfer. The reason why you're transferring that onto your therapist is probably because touch for you was particularly traumatic in some way or particularly complicated in your, when you were growing up, probably when you were very young. And no amount of verbal reassurance from your therapist will amount to simply touching each other's pinkies. Um, when you touch your therapist's pinky, it instantly helps you to very much trust her and very much realize that she cares about you and she doesn't think of you as, as you say, as repulsive. So there's something about touch being seen as repulsive to you as, as a internal judgment that you're, that you're repulsive for wanting touch. If I was to take a guess, I would, I would ask you questions around what you imagine it was like when you were one years old, when you were two, when you were three, and you needed physical warmth or you needed reassurance and you ran to your parents, did they treat you as repulsive? That would be my guess. Or some, some, they, they did something to you that made you uh, uh, conclude that you're gross, repulsive, maybe even dangerous. And that has led to a complex for you that can only be corrected through touching people and being reassured by those people who are touching you that you're not repulsive and that you're not dangerous and that you're lovable and, and touchable. 
And so that's why you have that deep urge. It's your, it's your unconscious mind trying to heal from that past trauma. And so it's, it's totally normal. It doesn't make you a creep at all. Um, and really, I wish more people paid attention to this sort of transference because um, it's, it's pretty common. You could, like I said, you could imagine anyone who's being relationally traumatized uh, that touch would be a part of that. But for most people, they, they shove that out of their mind because it feels too creepy to, to want to touch your therapist. Um, so, yeah. Now, but how do we use touch in therapy? Well, it gets tricky for two main reasons. One is that our society always sexualizes touch in general, let alone in a therapy office. You know, you're alone. Say for me, I'm a male. I'm a cisgender male. And I have a young female client, and I just decide to use touch with that client. If someone were to observe that or hear about it, I have no doubt believing that 99% of people would, uh, maybe 100% of people would at least have a question around whether or not there's something sexual about that. And that's very unfortunate because touch is uh, a... the all of the sorts of touch that we need in our lives like if if we stripped away our social shaming around touch and us humans were just allowed to touch as we would normally that might involve some creepiness and might involve some um you know non-consensual touching but the vast majority of touching i believe if humans were left to their own devices would be consensual would be welcomed and would be uh, wonderful. I imagine we would be touching probably a hundred times more often than we are in today's world, especially as we move towards everyone having their own room, everyone having their own TV, their own computer, their own phone. There's there's almost no forced contact. You know, you rewind the clock a couple hundred years and there weren't things like that. You might be sleeping in the same bed with your siblings. And so there's that physical warmth that comes from that. So we, uh, we sexualize all that kind of touch uh, for all these Victorian reasons that are really quite silly. And I think all of us, I don't know if, I don't know anyone, I can't think of anyone that I know personally who I wouldn't conclude is probably deprived of their regular amount of touch. And lo and behold, we see up an uptick in suicide rates, depression, anxiety, uh, these kinds of things. So um, we think of ourselves as progressing forward. We're not in some ways, for sure. We like to think of ourselves as uh, progressing as a a society sexually, more sexually liberated than we were in the past. That's certainly true in some respects, but in in 50 years, 100 years, they're going to look back at us and it will seem probably indistinguishable from people 120 years ago. They'll just lump us in with, well, yeah, they all believed in this crazy stuff about sexual shame. So that's one reason why therapists don't do uh, touch in therapy because of how it might come across to others, including the client, and how that might incur some kind of lawsuit or something. The second reason is that clients can be harmed by touch. Uh, Touch can be very intense and can result in a lot of confusion for clients. It can also lead to the therapist losing control of their own sexual attraction urges to which they might actually want to have sex with their client and make moves in that direction. 
So there's a lot of um, reasons to avoid touch in therapy. But uh, you ask, do therapists need to be trained? Yeah, they absolutely need to be trained and supervised for a while. It's a very particular kind of therapy. It's, it's fringe, like doing EMDR or, I don't know, empty chair work or something, or couple therapy for that matter. It, it's not typical that in graduate school you're going to get any instruction on how to use touch in therapy and, or any experience with a supervisor who knows what they're doing helping you understand how to do that. So it's very particular, just like about a lot of other particular forms of therapy, and needs to be, uh, you, need, you need training. There are uh, training institutes. There's the Zur Institute who uh, provides, they provide trainings. They also provide ethical codes that guide the use of touch, um, which I appreciate. Um, it's a rare specialty, honestly, to have therapists who use touch. Now, there are other... Uh, Practitioners or other professionals who use touch, massage therapists, for example, use touch all the time, right? And so sometimes that can be good. You'll hear from massage therapists or, or clients who go to massage therapists that sometimes when they're being massaged in a particular way or in a particular area, that emotions will arise for people because, you know, the body keeps the score, right? So um, there are other ways it's interesting, isn't it interesting that for massage, you know, something we call massage therapy is totally accepted and fine. But if you sat down with your therapist and held their hand for two minutes, you might get sued. <laughs> Meanwhile, in massage therapy rooms, same situation, a male uh, a massage therapist, a younger female client, she's naked, which is often the case, and he's rubbing all over except for private parts. Um, isn't it interesting that one is totally accepted by our society and the other one is totally not acceptable uh, to our society? It's bizarre. We have a very strange society. Um, so, yeah, uh, it can get tricky. Uh, I res very much respect your therapist for drawing that boundary. Uh, she, she says she doesn't have training in it, and you're in very good hands. If she went ahead and did it with you, uh, I would very much question her ethics and her decision-making and her integrity. Uh, you're very much pressuring her to do it, it sounds like, but she's handling it well, and she's saying, I'm sorry, I just can't do that. We can still talk about it, but I'm not going to do that. Okay, after a long time, maybe we can compromise and we can uh, do a pinky promise. That's a pretty, uh, pretty um, low-grade touch, <laughs> shall we say. It'd be hard to interpret a pinky promise as a sexual thing, right? So that uh, now I'm really glad that you found that compromise with each other. Uh, it sounds like it was a very important corrective experience, corrective experience for you in which you instantly felt the warmth of the relationship. You felt it as a, as a concrete validation that you're not dangerous or repulsive and that only through touch could that occur, at least in that rapid fashion? So it sounds like your therapist is a very caring, ethical therapist, and I'm really glad for you. Um, I also agree with her recommendation. I didn't read this part of your email, but you talked about her recommending that you find other ways to meet your needs regarding touch. So uh, one thing is that um, you can get her acceptance and her the, uh, the notion that she cares about you and doesn't think of you as repulsive without necessarily touching each other. It might take longer, but 
you can do that through uh, talk therapy. The other thing is to get other people to meet your touch needs. Obviously, like I said, a massage therapist, but relationships, family, spouses, maybe your own kids you can roll around or cuddle while watching TV. There are lots of different ways. An animal, right? A, a pet, a dog, a cat, a snake, if you're into that kind of thing. But the thing, the last thing I'll say about this, and this applies to a lot of people that email me about things along these lines. I get a lot of emails from people saying that they have some sort of deep longing for some kind of contact with their therapist, whether that be touch, whether that be getting to know their therapist better, whether that be their therapist uh, self-disclosing more or spending more time with their therapist. This is evidence of relational trauma. When we are abandoned, when we're mistreated, when we're made to feel repulsive growing up, we have a deep hole in us that needs to be filled. And regular life and relationships typically don't do that because they're not really set up to do that. We really need to be reparented. When you are in romantic relationships, it's a two-way street. Parenting is mostly a one-way street. And what we're looking for as an adult to fill that hole is we're looking for a one-way street. We want someone to care about us. We want someone to see us. We want someone to make us feel safe. We want someone to hold us. We want, we want to depend on that person. And through that relationship, through that corrective experience, we can fill that hole and finally move on in life. And that is what therapy is designed for. And it's what a lot of people, you know, a lot of people benefit from therapy in that way. However, while you are experiencing that, it, it's, it's not just all fun and games. When you are trying to get that contact with your therapist, you're also noticing how, how painful it feels because you have to open yourself up to the vulnerability, a vulnerability that you have for years been denying and sectioning off and not acknowledging. And so to allow yourself to have a corrective experience with your therapist, your, your mind and body and soul opens up to that person when you begin to trust that therapist. And with that trust comes all the vulnerability and all the pain. And all that just comes rushing out. Lots of feelings come out. You know, feelings of love for the therapist, where romantic love, feelings of sexual attraction to the therapist, feelings of wanting to be touched by the therapist, and and also feelings of anger and resentment and and fear of being vulnerable. And so there's a there's a lot of feelings coming out that are a lot of transferences that are going to the therapist and a lot of pain. It's just it's very painful. A lot of a lot of unfulfilled longing. For example, with you, anonymous patron, let's say your therapist did provide you with the touch that you wanted. I would suspect that although that might be therapeutic in the short term, you would still want more because the underlying hole that you're filling through therapy it can't be filled very quickly. And as you feel that hole, you'll always connect that with some kind of behavior that you want from your therapist. You know, I, I could see a scenario where your therapist holds your hand or hugs you or something for five minutes every session. Well, you're, you're going to be filling that hole to some extent, but the hole is still largely unfilled. And so you're going to, you're going to notice that hole 
And you're going to say, oh, how do I feel that? Well, maybe I need to be in love with her. Maybe we need to have sex or maybe I need to be her friend. And there's this constant uh, longing for the next step. And so to some extent, uh, there's, there's really no solution to that. And I get, I get emails from people probably daily about this by this point. Um, some sort of thing where a client is saying, uh, you know, like a termination issue, people will often email me about this. They will terminate with, they'll have relational traumas and then they'll have some kind of chaotic relationship with a therapist. Something goes wrong. The therapist terminates with them and the client thinks it's premature and feels harmed by that. And a year later, the client who was terminated with will email me and say, I long for a, a conversation with my past therapist. I just need closure. I just need to have that conversation with that therapist. And I've been with people through that process where they actually have reached out to their past therapist and had those conversations. And what I found is that it doesn't actually solve the problem because that hole is still there. It's normal to look towards concrete things in your present life to fill that hole and solutions to that. Like, I feel the hole. If I just had contact of this sort with my therapist, it'll solve that problem. But that's actually a distortion. There's really nothing that will fill that hole very quickly. Now, you can fill the hole, but it takes time. It takes a long, long time in therapy, usually. Or if you somehow find a very secure, mostly one-way relationship with someone outside of therapy, then that, that, that can work too, a mentor, an uncle, or even a, you know, a reconnection with your parents or something. But in therapy, it takes a long time. In fact, I've worked with people who have had this whole uh, a lack of self, an arrested development, a you know, personality disorder. It will take decades. I've worked with people for... 15 plus years and seen, you know, like a 50% reduction in that hole, a 50% filling of the hole, a 50% cure of the original wounds. Those early wounds are so profound and so deep, it's really hard to correct for them very quickly. And so it just takes time. You've been in therapy for 10 months. That is not probably enough time to uh, heal for you. You will likely long for uh, some sort of contact that's beyond your, that feels beyond your reach with your therapist for the duration of your healing. And that could be 10, 20, 30 years. And I know that's depressing to people out there. They'll tell me, so, you know, after we go back and forth over email, they'll be like, so let me get this straight. In order for me to get better, I have to go to therapy. And in order for therapy to work, I have to be in long-term therapy. And in order for long therapy to work, I have to open myself up. And if I open myself up, then I'm going to be in distress the entire time. And the answer to that is yes. But you will be in less distress overall than if you do nothing. If you do nothing, you can uphold your defenses and you'll feel less acute distress um, on some level, but the ongoing emptiness, the ongoing sadness, the ongoing fear, the ongoing disconnectedness, the ongoing self-esteem issues will not change. In fact, they often get worse. Well, sometimes they get better, but they persist. So it's sort of like if you, you know, 
if you have a uh, Band-Aid on and you want to take it off, you could just wait for it to randomly fall off your arm or you could rip it off. <laughs> you know, that's that's the analogy. I, I, don't, I don't know if I really like that analogy. But the, the point is, is that uh, therapy, in order for it to work when you have relational trauma, is it's going to be painful. And the the point to it is to see it accurately. As you're going through that distress, recognize, even though it doesn't feel that way, that this is evidence of therapy working. And that although you feel a strong urge to touch your therapist, it isn't actually what you need. It isn't actually what will help you. It's a strong urge, but it's not actually what's happening. What's actually happening is your vulnerability is opening up and your cognitive mind is sort of latching onto the touch element of it for whatever reason, and you're becoming ultra-focused on that. But overall, what's happening is your therapist is a secure relationship for you, and your unconscious is looking to that relationship to repair for that past injury. And if you can, see, if you can conceptualize it that way, it can, it can take away some of the intensity of it. You know, it's sort of like when, uh, I always give this analogy, but when the first time you go snorkeling, if you've ever gone snorkeling before, you put the mask on, you put the tube in your mouth, and you put your face under the water, and you don't breathe. You, your brain is saying, you know, breathe in, you have a tube in your mouth, it's okay. But your body is saying, no, 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 this is not, this is not going to work. I, I can't, I, my face is underwater, I have an instinct, my body does not want me to breathe. Your, your very thin prefrontal cortex in the front of your forehead is saying to yourself, breathe. But the rest of your body, 99% of your body is saying, no, do not breathe. Well, when you go into therapy, there's a huge part of you that is feeling these urges for more connection, for love, for romance, for more contact. And you have to do what you can with your prefrontal cortex and say, I know I feel this right now, but I, I also know that I, it's not necessarily what I need. It's not necessarily accurate to what is going to help me. And I have to, uh, I have to see it that way. It, it won't take away that inability to, to breathe underwater, but it will help me to deal with the fear a little bit and realize that I'm not actually drowning underwater and that uh, it just feels like I'm drowning underwater. And that's a very important distinction to make. And the the catch-22 here is when you have complicated post-traumatic stress disorder or borderline or narcissism or histrionic or or paranoid personality, avoidant personality, then it, it in order to regulate your emotions, you have to heal. <laughs> so it, it, it's kind of a a very difficult situation. I mean, it's not as though people with these conditions can't regulate their emotions, but they just have a much harder time because they have a harder time even knowing what their emotions are to begin with. And so you got to know what you're experiencing before you can regulate it, right? So it it's complicated. But anyway, I hope, I hope that addresses your question. And let me know how it goes because um, maybe over time with therapy and with the pinky promising, you will experience more healing and less symptoms. Uh, I really, I see that in your future. I think you're on the right track and I have a lot of hope and um, optimism for you about that. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Hannah. Patron Hannah writes, 
I want to either pursue a master's in mental health counseling or a PhD in clinical or counseling psychology. I am interested in doing some research, you know, like research, research in psychology, but I'm mostly interested in owning my own private practice. Pursuing a master's feels kind of like a shortcut to achieving my ultimate goals, roughly three years instead of six to seven years. But I also think a PhD would provide a breadth of career options in the field of psychology in a way that a master's in counseling wouldn't. However, PhD programs in clinical psychology are so competitive that even applying feels like a pipe dream. Sources report that 4% of applicants are accepted into the program or, or lower in most universities. How do I overcome my indecision on which graduate program to pursue? It feels as though if I pursue a master's, it'll be because I was too afraid to challenge myself to get a PhD. And if I do pursue a PhD, it'll be because I got caught up in the elitist notions of success and professional clout, and I'll end up hating the program. I don't think of myself as particularly indecisive, but this decision has really been weighing on me as it has so much bearing on my future career. As someone who has earned both a master's and a doctorate in the mental health field, I'm hoping that you can shed some light on my problem. All right. Good question, patron Hannah. I get this question or some version of it probably every couple of weeks, so I thought I would answer this um, uh, question. So the first thing I'll say is congrats, patron Hannah, on entering the field. You have been called to make the world a better place, and you are answering that call. So congratulations. Yeah. So I got my master's in 1997 in couple and family therapy. I became a licensed marriage family therapist. I worked at an agency. Then I went into private practice. Uh, with my master's, I had a thriving private practice. I was a supervisor, both as a, I was privately hired as a supervisor and as a consultant as well. I was also contracted by agencies to provide supervision. Again, this is just with my master's. I was a professor with my master's in the couple and family therapy program, a master's level uh, professor. I started my podcast with just my master's. I was a public speaker with just my master's. I was an author of publications with just my master's. So I hope that uh, explains to people what you can do with a master's. And there's many more things one can do. Those are just the things I did. Again, private practice, supervision, professor, podcaster, public speaker, author. Um, I got my PsyD. Uh, I don't know if I've ever really admitted this, but I got my PsyD mainly because of only one reason, and it's sort of a dubious reason. And it was because at the time in 2009, 2010, my mentor, Paul David, was wanting to retire. He, he actually just retired last month, finally. But he had been talking about retiring for a long time. He was, at the time, I don't know, mid-60s or something. And he wanted to retire, but he couldn't think of anyone to replace him as program chair, as program director of the couple and family therapy program at Antioch University, Seattle. It's one of the biggest, it, it's the biggest couple, uh, marriage and family therapy program in the region, I think, uh, among several states maybe not California, but, um, you know, Oregon, Idaho, I believe. It, in fact, is probably bigger than all the other programs in the area combined. It's a very big program, and Paul should be very proud. He built it himself. He was program director for uh, its entirety, uh, you know, 20 years or so, 20, 30 years. And that's a big deal to single-handedly 
start a program without anyone suggesting he he do it. He didn't have to do it. He was already teaching in the clinical mental health counseling program, and he he started a couple a couple and family program, built it from the ground up, and it became you know one of the most influential programs in the Northwest. And he had shepherded and built and worked hard to get this thing going. And he, when he retired, he wanted to hand this off to someone that he trusted, and he trusted me. And so I, at the time, had no idea what it was like to be program director. I was ambivalent about being program director because I saw how much stress he was under, and I didn't want that. But I, I didn't want to let him down, and I felt like I owed him so much that I should at least give it a try. And I thought, well, maybe I'll like it. Who knows? So I basically got my uh, doctorate only because of that, because in order to become program director, you have to be core faculty, which is a certain designation at, at Antioch. And in order to be core faculty, you have to have a doctorate. You can't have a master's. And so even though I was full-time faculty, I couldn't become program director. So, And it's this really silly thing, because it's not like getting my doctorate made me a better administrator. It's just the way academia works. You need doctorates in order to uh, rise to certain levels in the ranking system. And it's it's really arbitrary. It doesn't make any sense. And it really bothered me at the time because I was like, so wait a second, I have to spend how much money and how much of my time to go back to school uh, to get a degree that I don't really feel like I need and won't benefit from just so I, you know, I can prove to administration, maybe the public that I'm worthy of a job that I know I'm worthy of anyway. You know, because it's not like getting my doctorate taught me how to be an administrator. You know, being a program director has almost nothing to do with psychology. I mean, not any more to do with psychology as any other business position, uh, which is probably a lot. But there's not like in my doctorate, I learned how to administrate. I learned a lot of other skills or, I don't know, was exposed to potentially learn a lot of other skills, maybe I should say. But – I uh, anyway, so I, I I wanted to become program director. I was a bit ambivalent about it, so I got my doctorate pretty much only for that reason. Now I also wanted to learn more, and to be honest, as you were saying in the the elitist clout thing, I wanted to have doctor before my name. Uh, I at the time was young; I was thirty nine, and felt as though in academia I wasn't getting much respect. I didn't care that much about it, but. I thought, well, it would be kind of nice to rise to the level of all the other core faculty and get some respect. I don't know. We'll see. And But pretty much if, if, I, if my mentor hadn't said, I want you to become program director, I'm pretty sure by this point I never would have got my doctorate. Because, um, again, I had a wonderful career. I had a thriving private practice. I was thriving as a professor at Antioch. I was supervising. I was, my podcast was going, like everything was going well. And so there wasn't really a big reason for me to get my doctorate. Um, so uh, the only difference, really practically speaking, that uh, after getting my doctorate, when I look at my career before and after, is I get paid a little bit more as a professor, not that much more, honestly, because professors don't get paid much to begin with. And I get to call myself Dr. Kirkonda. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if that, you know, when I introduce myself in the podcast is this is, you know, Dr. Kirkonda, I wonder if people respect me more because of that. I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say. And do I really care that much about that sort of thing? No. Um, so uh, so the I get emails saying, because people will often ask me, should I get a doctorate? Should I get a master's? 
And there's a myth out there that doctorate, people with doctorates earn more money at, you know, in, in their career. And the answer is, generally speaking, no, especially when you're talking about private practice. When, or, at, you know, yeah. So if you're a clinician and you want to treat clients, you want to treat children or teens or adults or couples or groups or families or elderly people or people with autism, uh, people with doctorates don't get paid any more than people with master's degrees, particularly in my area because everyone in my – all the therapists in my area pretty much don't take insurance because insurance will – like I've talked about this before, but for example, my fee is $150, which – Given some of my colleagues who have similar backgrounds as me, it's actually on kind of on the low side, $150 per session. And insurances will, if if I use insurance uh, formally, if I'm a contractor provider, then my fee will come down at at the highest to like 116 or something. And at the low end, it might come down all the way to like $50. So if I use insurance... I get the benefit of having a client referral base, but I lose uh, two thirds of my fee, which, and my fee isn't set in this arbitrary, silly way. It's, it's set in a way that reflects um, how I can pay the bills. People think, well, $150 an hour, that's insane. Well, you got to think about student debt. You got to think about renting your office. You got to think about the fact that you can't work 40 hours a week as a therapist. I mean, you can't see 40 clients a week. You got to think about cancellations. You got to think about overhead. You got to think about, you know, all the kinds of things. And it, it quickly whittles itself down to a much, much lower per hour, uh, you know, wage, so to speak. Anyway, so um, so it's it's a myth that people with doctorates get paid more because a person with a doctorate, if – they wanted to, and if they have the reputation to uh, justify it, they could charge three hundred dollars an hour if they wanted to. Whereas a doctorate uh, level therapist, uh, straight out of school, might not have the reputation to charge even a hundred dollars per session. So, it now insurance companies might pay a little bit more depending. Uh, for ex- well, I won't go into the weeds on that, but insurance companies sometimes pay just a little bit more if you have a doctorate, but sometimes they don't. And sometimes having a doctor is a hindrance to even getting paid by insurance companies because they already have enough people with doctorates on their panels and that kind of thing. It's complicated. But anyway, so yeah. Um, now, I have more options with my career with my doctorate that I don't want, <laughs> like with my PsyD. So to be clear... I got my master's in marriage and family therapy, and then I got my PsyD, and the PsyD is a psychology doctor, and it's, it's set up to train people to become psychologists, which is a completely different profession than marriage and family therapy. And it also doesn't accept any of my master's, so I had to start over and get another master's and then get a doctorate. So I started as if I had no education. I started at the same level as 22-year-olds who just got out of, you know, their four-year bachelor's degree. And so that was another kind of issue was for me was like there was varying degrees of sophistication among my classmates. And of course, the teachers had to teach to the class. They couldn't teach necessarily to me. I'm not saying I'm some superior, awesome person. There was very intelligent people, uh, classmates of mine. Um, but there were some classes that were well below my, my learning level, um, particularly since I I mean, imagine you teach a class for 20 years and then you take it as a student. 
<laughs> and you're graded, you know, it, it was just like, ah, oh, this is frustrating. But many of the classes were not that way. Anyway, my point is, is that I learned in my, get, getting my PsyD, I learned how, uh, I, I, presumably I learned a little bit more about how to be a counselor. Um, it could be argued I didn't learn anything about more about getting a counselor because I had already been a therapist for 15 years by that point. So um, what more could you learn at a level that the teachers were teaching to? But anyway, I d- but I definitely learned about two things. One was I learned about research. In my master's, I learned almost nothing about research. In my doctorate, I learned a fair amount about research. I even conducted my own research study, my dissertation. And there's nothing like there's nothing that teaches you more about research than actually doing research yourself. The other thing I learned about was how to be an assessor, how to provide psychological assessments, testing, this kind of thing, how to administer IQ tests and personality tests and um, uh, the Rorschach, the inkblot test. I, I took a class, an elective on that, how to do ADHD testing and autism testing and, um, you know, schizophrenia testing. And although this enhanced most definitely my ability to understand diagnosing and assessing, once I was done with the training, I did not want to do it anymore. It is uh, something that psychologists are specialized in, and you can actually make a good living doing it. But it was one of the most boring things I'd ever done in my life. I could not stand it as I was doing it. It, it is basically homework. I mean, initially it was interesting to me because I was like, oh, you know, I can administer these personality tests and you sort of – it's like this detective job where you're trying to figure someone out. But when you actually sit down to write the report and you have to put it in some kind of publishable way, everything kind of loses its zeal and it, it just felt like tedious, tedious work. And then I projected ahead. I thought, well, wait a second. So this sort of job, there's only, a, there's only, a, there's only so many tests you can administer. And there's only so many findings you can have. And so I'm, if this is tedious already, I'm sure after a couple of years, I would be, you know, wanting to pull my hair out with the boredom of this all. So assessing is not for everyone, I'm here to tell you. The other thing about being a researcher is that although I, I think I do definitely benefit, particularly for this podcast and, and disseminating research to people since I understand it better, but being a professional researcher is almost impossible. Essentially, research, there's very few jobs where you just sign up and say, I want to be a researcher. Why? Because no one consumes research, or very few things consume research. If you want to be a clinician, well, there's a revenue stream for that, because there's this, there's millions of clients out there who want to pay you hard-earned cash to help them, to sit down with them and talk with them for an hour. So there are, there's an automatic revenue stream in terms of getting a job and earning a living. To be a researcher, who pays for research? Well, there's grants, and which are essentially donations from foundations and universities. These organizations essentially donate money to researchers to do a particular task. And that's a hard thing to obtain, and there's drastically less money in that. And so although research is interesting, uh, good research takes a long time to do and sometimes requires money to actually conduct. And so unless you find some really sweet gig where you are, you know, you're at a top tier university and your mentor is 
Marshall Linehan or someone, then in all likelihood, you're not going to be a researcher. It's very hard. The other thing I'll say is even when you do get sweet gigs like that, unless you're Marshall Linehan who actually conducts and makes all the choices, then in all likelihood, you're just an assistant. And although you're probably having some jollies along the ride, you're probably doing a lot of tedious work. You're probably you know, studying something over and over and over again. You're probably more stressed out about funding and about publication than you are about having fun while doing the research. So research is a lot. A lot of people will say to me, they'll be like, so, you know, I'm thinking about getting a master's. I'm thinking about getting a doctorate. You know, I really want to do research. You know, what I tell people is find someone who's doing your job as a researcher and ask them what it's really like. Uh, if you can't even find someone that is enjoying themselves as a researcher uh, and and it f- feels like it's a it's a good use of their time in their career, then that tells you something, right? However, if you find a therapist who loves their job, uh, that's easy to find. Why? Because there's a lot of them, and it's easy to get into that gig. A, I, pretty much everyone who graduates from my program at Antioch gets a job in couple and family therapy, many of whom actually go into private practice and have thriving practices within two to five years. So it, it, it's, it's an easy route to go. Becoming a researcher in some ways is like trying to become like a rock star, maybe not that high, but you know, becoming a successful, fulfilled researcher who isn't bogged down by uh, you know, bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff is really quite a special gig. And, uh, you know, saying that you like research and you have all these ideas about conducting research is a far cry from actually getting one of those gigs. And by the time you actually were able to make decisions about your own research, it'd be like 25 years into your career. And if you're willing to put in that work and you love research that much, then by all means, yes, you need to get your doctorate. Um, Yeah. All right. So that's what I'll say about that. All right. So getting back to your decision, should I get a master's? Should I get a doctorate? Um, Well, let's look at some of the nitty gritty, the differences between a doctorate and a master's. Doctorates cost anywhere between $120,000 and $150,000. And that's just for tuition and maybe books. Uh, So you're looking at for tuition and books, you're you're probably looking at a general figure of about $140,000. You're also looking at about six years, five years minimum, uh, but probably more like six, sometimes seven, eight, nine years into a doctorate. I know people, close friends of mine, who took 10 years to finish their doctorate. Now, the last four years were kind of light because they were working on their dissertation or something, and they were probably working by then. But still, 10 years to get a degree? I mean, that's insane, right? So, but at least five years, probably more like six years of backbreaking full-time school and work. You are completely dominated by the doctorate. You're not only going to school, which of course most people can envision, but you're also doing in doctorates, you're often doing a lot of internships. You're doing a lot of practical work. And often the pay is not great for those sorts of things. Sometimes it's completely for free. You're not getting paid at all. It's an internship of some some kind. So the other thing to know about a PsyD anyway, to, you know, if you want to become a psychologist, is that you have to usually move for your internship. So imagine that year five or year four of your program, 
you have to move to the middle of Wyoming or something because that's where the that's the only place where you can get an approved internship at. That's something that a lot of people don't really understand when they get a, a psychology doctorate is that you're if if you can move and some people can some people love to move, but most people can't just pick up and move. They have children, they have a spouse who works, they have family, they have you know, their support system. It's hard for them to just move across the country. Now, there are situations where you can find an approved uh, internship in your city, but it's, but I wouldn't bank on that. Um, also, if you're getting a doctorate, it's kind of hard to work at the same time. Not impossible, but uh, for some doctorates, it's very hard to work at the same time. So you're not only going into debt from tuition, but you're also going into debt for paying for your expenses. So people often emerge with a doctorate with uh, $250,000 in debt. So that's just something to think about. Whereas a master's, uh, my program in, at the Couple of Family Therapy program can, can be completed in as little as two years. So if you go full time, you can finish in two years. You can go as long as six years if you want. So there's a flexible. Often doctorates don't have that flexibility because there's more of a cohort model. I'm I'm not trying to sell you on my program at Antioch uh, because we have enough students and I, and I don't get any kickback. I'm just telling you what I know. Um, and the cost, instead of, say, $140,000, is more like fifty dollars to $60,000. So quite a bit less. Um, also, master's programs tend to not dominate your life as much in general. So... If you want to be in private practice, so you say you want to, you're, you're interested in research, but what your dream is, is you want to own your own private practice. There's a clear answer to that. It's a master's. You only live once. Do you want to spend extra time just because you want the elitist designation of having a doctorate? I, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, unless you really love school and unless you really love debt, um, uh, then uh, by all means, or, you know, you want to take a stab at being a researcher or you want to take a stab at being an assessor. Now, an assessor actually is specific to psychology. So there's a whole other distinction I have to get into here is you have psychology doctorates, which train you to be a psychologist, a licensed psychologist. And those are the people that are qualified to provide assessments, psychological assessments, which I find to be extremely boring, but some people love. Um, there are other doctorates that actually don't train you to do that at all. Um, for example, there are doctorates in counseling, mental health counseling, that don't train you to do assessments. There are doctorates in marriage and family therapy that don't train you to do assessing. They, they train you how to supervise and they train you how to teach is mainly and do research. So, tra- so anyway, I'll get to that in a second. But um, so uh, if you want to do – if you want to assess – if you want to do research, then you pretty much your only uh, option is to get a doctor, a doctorate. Um, also, the other thing to think about is it's not really a decision that you have to make in the beginning, because with a lot of doctorates, you can get it after your master's. Uh, so, for example, uh, I didn't do it this way. I probably should have, but I didn't. Uh, a lot of doctorate programs will totally acknowledge your entire master's. So they'll pick up where your master's left off. And those doctorates are not six years. They're about three years and about half the cost and all that kind of stuff. For example, at Antioch University, Seattle, we have a doctorate program in uh, counseling, in mental health counseling. We also have a um, program 
on the East Coast in marriage and family therapy, a doctorate program. So you get your master's in mental health counseling or you get your master's in uh, couple and family therapy or you, I'm guessing if you, you can get your master's in social work too. I'm not quite sure. Um, and then say you work for a couple years and you're like, you know what? I need to get my doctorate. Well, you can apply to a doctorate program that, that acknowledges your your master's, and then you, instead of you know starting from the beginning, you, you just continue on with your education, and you learn research, and you learn um, uh, supervision, and you learn teaching. The one difference with that route is you don't learn how to be an assessor in general, depending on the program. But um, as I said, you're not interested in that, and I don't I don't blame you for not being interested in that. Um, so the other thing I'll say about doctorate programs is that they're much harder to run. As a uh, employee at Antioch University for over 20 years, I have observed the you know how the sausage is made in both doctorate programs, in art therapy programs, drama therapy programs, mental health counseling programs, couple and family therapy programs, um, and then all the other graduate programs we have. Like we have a graduate program in education, um, and that kind of thing. So I I have seen. Uh, both from behind the curtain and from the student side of the curtain, that to run a master's program is so much easier than running a doctorate program. I ran a master's program myself. It was fairly hard. Running a doctorate program is almost impossible. <laughs> there are so many more moving parts to a doctorate program. There's a, because there's just so many things you have to tackle as a as a doctorate program. Um, you're you're limited to a different pool of potential instructors. Uh, everything just gets more complicated. And by uh, as an effect of that complicated nature of doctorate programs, they tend to be not as good as master's programs. Now, I am just talking from anecdotal experience, but I have heard whenever I talk to people casually, uh, you know, colleagues, friends about their experience in their master's program as opposed to their doctorate, universally, people will say, I really liked my master's program, but man, my doctorate was a rough ride. I've never heard someone say, my master's program I hated and my doctorate program I loved. I've never heard heard that. (laughs) Now, I'm sure it happens, and I'm sure some of you might email me about that. But uh, doctorate programs are, because they're complicated, they they're just harder to be as student centered. They're harder to uh, be as um, student oriented and, and it gets more confusing for both professors and students. And so uh, I have found that people, I mean, I have trauma. I, and I don't use that word lightly. There are certain stories that happen in my doctoral program where my hands will start sweating, my heart will start beating fast when I think about certain things that happened to me in my doctorate program. There's nothing like that at my master's program. Well, aside from being fired from my internship during my internship during my first internship, but that had nothing to do with my master's program. That had to do with an agency I was at. But um, anyway, so you know, maybe I have a bone to pick. I'm obviously biased on my own experience, but it's just another thing to think about. Now, I'm not going to dog on doctorates. I have a doctorate. Um, you know, most of my colleagues at Antioch have a doctorate. Uh, it definitely can be worth it. But if your goal is to go into private practice, uh, I have, I, and you want to be a researcher, which I 
uh, I challenge you to find a career path that appeals to you that actually is realistic. Um, and if you can't find that career path in research, and it sounds like what your dream is, is to really do private practice, and there's a clear answer, and that's to get a master's. Uh, and like I said, if after a few years after your master's, you find that you have the itch to do research, you can always go back and get your doctorate in you're, – you're, plan, you're planning on going to mental health counseling master's. You can always get a doctorate in mental health counseling. That only takes three years, and you're set up to do research at that point. Now, to address your your point about only 4% get in, you're, you're looking at doctorate programs and you're like, oh my God, only 4% get in. Well, the programs you're looking at are the sort of programs that are designed to be very hard to get into. Uh, one, because they keep the programs very small. The University of Washington program, the PsyD program, or the PhD in psychology program, is designed to be very small. It's designed to be very competitive. And they also... Um, the reason why everyone wants to go there is because they're a top tier. They're like a world-class psychology research center. So if you want to become the next famous researcher or something, then you you pretty much have to go to one of these places. Um, there are other centers around the world that are like this. There's probably, I don't know, a couple, few hundred different centers around the world that are like this that get the big bucks, that do all the famous studies – that are often called upon to um, research tough topics. And so they're very competitive to get into. Um, the vast majority of doctorate programs are not like that. You're probably looking at very particular kinds of programs. And in all likelihood, they're not clinical programs because clinical programs in general, they're not, co- they're not as competitive for a number of reasons I won't go into. But not because they are, they have substandard education, but because there's just more resources anyway. Um, so, so the when you're there, if you're thinking about doctorate programs, uh, there's a lot of doctorate programs that you would very likely get into if you are a halfway good applicant. The other thing to remember is to not necessarily when you're going on the internet, don't necessarily believe the numbers that you see. I I can't imagine. Um, being someone on the internet right now trying to find a program to go to. Because I look at these websites where there's programs, you know, advertising, including our own for that matter, where it's like, okay, everyone kind of says the same thing. How do you differentiate between the programs? It's, it's just so hard, you know, especially as we move into the future and everyone's claiming social justice focus, everyone's claiming evidence-based, everyone's claiming, you know, this or that. And it's like, how do you differentiate? So, um, the other thing to remember is that this 4% number is that it's probably a distortion. I have a calcul- I'm in charge of calculating those numbers for my program at Antioch, and I'm here to tell you that the numbers can deceive. Now, I'm not purposely deceiving people. I actually have to follow a certain formula set by my accreditors to calculate those numbers, like how many people we accept into the program, but it doesn't provide the nuance. For example... I don't remember our acceptance rate, but it's something like, if you looked at the numbers, it's something like 50% or something. But the reality is, is that the amount of applicants, so, you know, you figure it out primarily by looking at the amount of applicants versus the amount of people who, who like matriculated, who actually started the program. Well, a number of people who apply will actually back out of the interview process early just because they're just like, ah, nah, I don't want, or they go somewhere else or something. 
And sometimes those people are counted as someone who, quote unquote, didn't get in. But of course, it was by their choice that they didn't get in. It's not because we didn't let them in. And so the numbers of, of um, you know, uh, the percentage of people who actually get into a program um, isn't necessarily an indication of what would happen to you if you actually went through the application process. Having said that, the, the programs you're looking at where they claim 4% acceptance rate in all likelihood are very difficult to get into. Uh, so uh, that's not a lie. But when you're looking at all the other kinds of numbers, it's just something to keep in mind. So that, in conclusion, you're saying, you know, you want to you go into private practice. Um, of course, you know, do your research. Don't just take my word for it. But if I were in your position, which I was, I would get my master's in either clinical mental health counseling or couple and family therapy or social work. And then I would, and well, and if you want to go into private practice, I wouldn't get a master's in social work. Most, most masters in social work train you for, for a number of other things like working in hospitals and this kind of thing. If you, if you just want to go into private practice, I recommend a mental health counseling or a marriage and family therapy degree. Both train you to be effective uh, private practice practitioners who earn a very good living and who can charge insurance and, you know, both get paid the same. And then later on, if you're just like, man, I want to stretch my wings. I want to learn more. I want to learn more about teaching. I want to learn more about supervision. I want to learn more about research. Then get your uh, doctorate in either clinical mental health counseling, which is the, the K-CREP. The doctorate that's related to mental health counseling is called uh, counseling education and supervision. And the uh, doctorate in marriage family therapy is called a doctorate in marriage family therapy. So you can, you can always go back. That's what I recommend. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Let me know what you think. Go to our website and um, fill out the contact us form. If you want to contact me, that's the way I would like it. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 